This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Let's open our Bibles, if you have a Bible, to Luke chapter 3. So we continue to work through our series in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 3. Let's begin our time with prayer. Lord, thank you for this passage that's before us. Thank you, especially for the picture of preparation. And so, Lord, now I just ask that you would prepare our hearts to hear from you. Lord, we pray that there would be conviction of sin that is by the Holy Spirit. We pray that there would be understanding in our hearts from you. Lord, we pray that As you change our hearts, our lives would reflect the power of the gospel. Lord, we pray for fruit in keeping with repentance. Guard us from making repentance merely a mental thing, a verbal thing. But may it make its way into our lives, Lord, into our private lives, into our marriages, into our families, our homes, our relationships. Lord, in our church. Lord, we pray our lives would be full of this fruit of the Spirit. And Lord, today that there may be some that for the first time understand they are walking down the road to destruction and turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do that by your grace and mercy and strength. Be our teacher, we pray. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent. That was a quote from a sermon preached by the 19th century Methodist preacher Peter Cartwright who once had the opportunity to preach before the president, Andrew Jackson. And before the service, some of Jackson's, uh, you know, cabinet kind of let him know, president's here, and uh, warned him a little bit not to say anything out of line. And so uh, when Cartwright got up to preach, in his introduction, he said, I understand Andrew Jackson is here. I've been requested to be guarded with my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell unless he repents. The congregation was shocked, but after the service, the president came up to Cartwright, shook his hand, and said, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. (laughs) By its nature, the gospel is offensive. So it comes at us with a message of warning. You are going the wrong way. Turn around, put your trust in Christ. And if we're going to be faithful messengers of the gospel, 
We must be willing to speak plainly about the Bible's call to repent for the forgiveness of sins. We're going to meet a preacher this morning that is preparing the way for Jesus Christ. And he does that through a message and baptism of repentance. And so let me just front load some of my application this morning in the sermon here at the beginning. Don't be tempted to downplay repentance as you think about the gospel. As you share the good news and consider the good news, don't subtract or mute repentance. Make no mistake, repentance does not save us. Faith in Jesus saves us. But there is also no salvation apart from repentance. If we don't understand our sin, we don't understand our need for a Savior. And repentance is a turning. It's a turning away from a life of sin and self and turning to trust, faith in Jesus Christ and following Him in a life of repentance. When we talk about the gospel here at UPBC, we often kind of use these markers of God, man, sin, Christ, response as as markers to keep us on track as we think about the gospel. God is holy, made man in his own image to glorify him and know him. But we have sinned and fallen short of that glory and deserve his just punishment. But he sent Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, to die on the cross, rise from the grave, save us from our sins. That's a great story unless... You respond, and you respond by repenting of your sin, turning from your sin, and putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Does that mean repentance is a work that we do? Is it a step that we climb in our own strength to earn salvation? No. Think of Paul's logic in Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, 1, he tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, You can preach to a corpse all day long. Is he, is he going to, to be able to repent on his own? No, he's not. You could try it. We're utterly helpless to bring about our own salvation. Then in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he tells us that we are saved by grace, not by works. It's only by grace that we turn from our sin and, and trust Christ. So even our repentance is a fruit, our own statement of faith says, it's wrought in the heart by the Holy Spirit. And it's also by grace then that we walk out a life of good works that God created us to walk in. Ephesians 2.10. That's the the, the result of the fruit of a life that's been uh, changed, born again. So if we respond to the call to repent of our sins and if we live a life marked out by love and selflessness, it's only because God's grace has changed us and made us new. So in our passage, John is preparing the way for the ministry of Jesus Christ by calling for people to acknowledge their sin before God and repent and actually live differently. Now, his baptism is not Christian baptism, but it is instructive for us as we consider the relationship between repentance and faith and salvation for the forgiveness of sins. It's a symbol of repentance here in our passage. And as we consider how we share the gospel with others, how to preach and teach the gospel here in this church, J.C. Ryle said that there is no charity or love in flattering unconverted people by abstaining from any mention of their vices or in applying smooth words to damnable sins. No one is going to accuse John the Baptist of flattery in this passage. 
From his birth, he is set aside for this very purpose, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Luke 1, 17. And he prepares them through a message of repentance. So here's the main point of our passage this morning, if you're taking notes. In one sentence, the Christian life is a life of repentance. The Christian life is a life of repentance. It begins that way. It's characterized that way throughout. And Lord willing, by God's grace, it will end that way. It's a life that's turned away from self and turned toward following Jesus in all that we do. So we're going to see this in the way that John preaches repentance in our text. And we're going to look at the passage in three sections if you're taking notes. First, we're going to see the, the context that John's gonna, his ministry is going to take place in. So and that's in verses 1 and 2, John's context. And then secondly, we'll see John's message itself, verses 3 to 9, i.e. repent. And then finally, John's application of that message, verses 10 to 14, where he gives some very specific, concrete um, instructions about repentance. So may the Lord prepare our hearts. As Jeremiah said, may we break up the unplowed ground in our hearts to be ready to receive him. So let's look at Luke 3 together. First, the context of the ministry of John the Baptist. It's very important to Luke to locate the ministry of Jesus Christ in world history. So he's careful to point out historical landmarks that that lend credibility to his witness. The, The events in this book, he's saying, really happened when these people were alive and doing things that we can we can validate from other places in history. So in the first two verses of this chapter, Luke is going to list seven leaders or rulers from all the way from those that that are the most powerful and influential Roman rulers down to the local spiritual leaders, the the, the high priest of Israel. And when you kind of compare Luke's record with ancient sources, it's most likely that John's ministry is beginning sometime around A.D. 26 to 29, right around maybe A.D. 27. So let's look together uh, at verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iuturia, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness." So we have this list of, of leaders and rulers. The, it begins with the Caesar. And of course, the Caesars were the rulers of the Roman world. Uh, Tiberius would have ruled kind of this region from a distance, mainly through his governors like Pontius Pilate. So we're introduced to, to, to Pilate here. And, and, and his actual title probably would have been prefect, which would have been meaning that he's essentially responsible for collecting taxes and keeping the peace there in Judea. And then beneath him are these three tetrarchs that ruled various regions. And the tetrarch just means a ruler over a fourth part of a region or maybe just used um, more colloquially as a kind of a ruler or prince. Um, Herod, this is Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, over Galilee. Philip, his brother, and Lysanias are mentioned. Now, everything we know about these leaders um, kind of kind of shows us not only their power, but they're also kind of characterized by pride and violence and, and self-indulgence. 
Okay, and so you've got kind of this group of elite rulers that are mentioned, and then and we'll just kind of leave it there. And then under that, kind of, you have the, the spiritual authority of Israel that are under the authority of the Roman rule. Uh, Annas, he, Annas was the high priest who had been ultimately succeeded by um, Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law. And Really, there's technically only one high priest. Uh, it's Caiaphas, but Annas could still be maybe exercising his influence here. And we'll we see that later as the gospel um, unfolds. John records when Jesus is arrested, they actually bring him to Annas. So he clearly is still an influential, uh, has a part to play um, in all that's, that, that's happening here. Uh, so Luke mentions them both. He places what's about to be said here on the calendar of world history. And it's here around A.D. 27 that we read, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. There in verse 2. And that phrase should kind of, kind of perk us up if we're, if we're familiar with the calling and the ministry of Old Testament prophets in Israel. This phrase is, is used often to describe the calling of those, those prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. So, so Luke is connecting here John the Baptist with the prophets of old, who is, who is now, John the Baptist, receiving direct revelation from God, a message from God to deliver to the people. It had been 500 years since this had happened, since the last prophetic kind of, kind of ministry generally, as where, as where God is kind of turning the page of, of salvation history, that the Lord had spoken through a prophet. So his ministry reaches back to the Old Testament prophets. We might see him as the last and maybe the, the greatest prophet, but he's different in the sense that the prophets pr- prophesied about him, which we'll see. So he also kind of lands in this new era of fulfillment where he's associated with the coming one, with Jesus Christ. Um, And so we see him kind of sitting in both worlds. Salvation history is literally turning the page as we go through and read. Uh, Luke doesn't mention John's appearance, but other gospel writers describe he's in this prophetic garb. He's not a guy that you just kind of hang out with uh, normally. He's just a little different. He's dressed like a prophet, he smells like a prophet, he eats like a prophet, and he's set aside from the world in every way. He lives out in the wilderness, which, which incidentally is where often people go, people groups go, to be prepared by God for, for ministry. So again, he kind of locates himself in that, that story of Israel, we'll see it of Jesus as well. So this is the context of John's ministry. When God breaks his silence and speaks his message to his messenger. And I just want to observe something about the irony of God's ways here. Luke mentions the the powerful, the elites, the religious leaders kind of to locate the story, but notice he shows that God is speaking to this wild man in the wilderness. God has just been consistently revealing himself to the most unlikely of people already in Luke's gospel. Shepherds watching their flock by night, uh, two older people who are past the, the, the age of childbearing, uh, a teenage virgin girl, and now John. So we're reminded, aren't we, that God's ways are not our ways. That God doesn't need the endorsement of, of culture to, to validate the message of the gospel. The rich and famous to make him credible. Sometimes we think, man, if only somebody famous, if only a famous sports hero or, or movie star could come to know Jesus, then, man, the kingdom would really be turned upside down. And God's saying, no, I'm going to use this 
this crazy guy in camel's hair in the forest to bring about the greatest news that's ever been told. I think God delights in doing the very opposite of what we think he might do, revealing himself to the little people. And this is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. God didn't choose the powerful, the wise, the strong, but the weak and the foolish and the despised in order to confound the world. So that's what God is like, and that's what he's doing here in our passage. And so he comes to John with a word for the world. And let's look at John's message next. So, so number two, John's message. Luke is first going to summarize his message in verse 3, and then he's just going to unpack it in verses 4 to 9. So first he summarizes it, verse 3, and says, And he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now remember this about John's baptism. It's unique to his prophetic ministry. Uh, we have a lot to learn from it, okay? But we don't want to draw a one-to-one correlation with a Christian baptism. Um, Jesus himself is going to be baptized by John. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna see that, again, we're in a place of salvation history turning as we, as we speak. And John is preparing for Jesus, preparing the way for him. And, and so we need to keep that in mind as we think about this baptism. The focus of Jewish baptism was mainly cleansing. And it would often be focused on, on Gentiles, on proselytes who would be converted to the Jewish faith. And, and there would be this picture of being washed clean from their way of life. Now the sting about, and sting, I mean S-T-I-N-G, sting of John's baptism is that now it's not just applied to Gentiles. Here it's applied to the Jewish people, the children of Abraham. And so he's calling them to repent through this baptism. And so his baptism is a sign of repentance. It's a, it's a marker. It's an indicator. It, kind of a, it flows downstream from true repentance. It looks with hope then to the coming of the Lord in faith to the forgiveness of sins. And I think that's why that Isaiah quotation comes right after this, this, this picture of forgiveness. John isn't saying that baptism through baptism you're, you're saved or baptism forgives your sins. But it prepares you for the one who will for the one who will save you. He says in verse 16 that his baptism is, shouldn't even be compared to the one that is to come through Jesus. The one that Jesus will bring, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we'll say more about that next week and the cleansing that comes through faith in Jesus. So the baptism of John is a preview, not the main attraction. But to ignore it would lead to devastation, to disaster. Because we cannot receive a Savior unless we turn to him, and that means we turn away from our sins. And so Luke is going to show that John's ministry is a fulfillment of Isaiah's promise to prepare the way for the Lord, and we'll see that ultimately as a preparation of repentance. So look at verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. At the most basic level, Isaiah's words point to preparation for a coming king. And so when an eminent ruler would 
would come and he would be about to be entering into a city. Uh, maybe for the first time, the citizens would construct a smooth, broad road so that he could enter with kind of the proper comfort and pomp and dignity. Think of the Olympics maybe coming to a city and how everything must be changed forever because of the, that one event. But the king that Isaiah describes here is no human king, but the Lord himself. And so the preparation is not building new roads. It's got this kind of the geography of the earth that needs to be shifted and changed to make his path straight. So valleys have to be filled in and mountains have to be brought low. Rough places have to be made smooth. And then Luke is unique with all the other gospel authors and that he includes Isaiah's note about the global impact of the coming of this king that all flesh will see the salvation of God. Again, pointing to Luke's heart that he wants to to show and see God's heart really for the nations. So this is the salvation that John's ministry is pointing to, the coming of the Lord. He's preparing for the coming of the Lord. And and that's not going to just be for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. All flesh will see his salvation. But I think there's, there's more to the Isaiah reference. The, the, the context of Isaiah 40 all the way to chapter 66, that whole section is this call to prepare. And, and, and that means morally and spiritually for the coming of the Lord. So in other words, this highway that is, that is like a highway to clear the way for God's coming, we should see this as a highway of a purified, repentant heart. A prepared people is a repentant people. As one author put it, our lives are the rocky ground and our paths are the crooked way. Like the wilderness of Israel, mountains of pride need to be broken down and valleys of self-pity need to be raised up. So the Lord has come and now lit a fire under that voice in the wilderness. And he has a message. He really has one, one sermon. That's kind of true of most of us preachers. We kind of have one sermon. We say it in different ways, different times. But John's got one sermon. And his, his, the fire is in his bones. And he begins to preach. And, and, and with the, the unction of the Holy Spirit. And, and underneath the, the power of this prophetic word from Isaiah. And a crowd begins to, to gather. And we preachers like a good crowd. Sometimes... We think, man, I want to do things to get a bigger crowd. And I wish there, maybe there's some things I shouldn't say or some of those crowd might go away. That's not the way John thinks. His strategy is a little bit different. And we see that pretty clearly. Verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's an interesting call to worship there, John. Welcome to the sermon today, you bunch of snakes. Brood of vipers is another way of saying son of snakes. All you sons and daughters of serpents. Not only does that, it's not flattering, snakes are poisonous and destructive, but we know theologically being a son of the snake has all kinds of theological freight with it. He's saying you're, you're the seed of the serpent, the snake. We know in, in, in some of the other Gospels, Matthew's Gospel, there, particular pieces of the crowd are in view here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and 
But here Luke kind of leaves it to the masses. And just the people are told this. Welcome, seed of the serpent. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? The picture there, and it's maybe that's always kind of been a, a question mark for me as I see, think about what he means by that. What, who warned you? Who told you? But it's this, it's this picture of like a fire that would break out in the wilderness or in the desert and these poisonous snakes would, would flee. They would come out of their, their holes and try to get away from the fire and escape, escape the destruction. And I think what he's doing there is, is, is a couple things. One of the things, he's just giving us kind of the nature of his message. He's accusing them of running away from the penalty without really reckoning with the reason for their repentance, having true repentance, trying to save their skin while remaining unchanged. So when a snake slithers out of one hole to another, he's still a snake. He's just running away from the penalty. He doesn't want to get burned. But the motivation for salvation is, I don't want to go to hell. And don't let that be the motivation to come to Christ. I just don't want to, I don't want to be burned. I want to, I want to keep living the life that I'm living Without the punishment. John is saying you need to understand that true repentance changes us at the core. It makes us a new creation. Look at verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What a powerful and clear picture. Our lives, your life is like a a tree. We can say whatever we want about the tree in in my front yard. I can call it whatever I want. It's an apple tree. It's a pecan tree, oak tree. We can say whatever we want about our lives. I'm a child of Abraham. I'm a Jew, I go to church, I'm secure because of my, my connection with my godly family or to some, something else. But John is saying that tree will be known by its fruits. Our actions will reveal our hearts. So John tells the Jews that, that God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones on the ground. Maybe that's an allusion to those new covenant promises that we find in Ezekiel and Jeremiah of God taking out a stone, a heart of stone, and putting in a a heart of flesh. There's no security, he says, in our connection to, to godly people or religious activity. It's our hearts that are in view. In this message of repentance, it's our hearts, the fruit of our own lives. And then he presses the analogy with urgency saying that there's a, there's a clock ticking. There's an axe already laid at the root of the tree as we speak. An axe of God's coming judgment. Not just at the trunk or at one of the branches, but at the, the, the very roots, the life source. Trees that don't bear good fruit are cut down and thrown into the fire. He's saying judgment is coming. Friends, by the way, I think this really, meditating on this, helps us to, to overcome some of our fear of man, maybe of embarrassment as it relates to, to sharing the gospel. Because we can, we can understand and visualize this may be an uncomfortable conversation, but think about the fires of hell. Think about judgment. 
Think about eternity. There's a day coming when God is gonna pour out his wrath in fire on all those who are in their sins. Consider the judgment of God. If you're here and maybe you're, you're not used to being in church or um, you're not sure if you would even say that you're a Christian or not, we're so glad that you're here. We'd love for you to just come and to think with us through a season of who Jesus is and, and who we are. And, the, and to understand that the Bible is, is clear, that you and I were made in the image of God, our creator. We're designed to know him and enjoy him and reflect him in all that we do. But like our first parents, we've turned from God's purposes and fallen short of them. We, we walk our own way, away from God's ways, away from God's paths. And so we are trees that bear bad fruit because our roots go deep into the soil of sin. And so repentance is a call to turn around. It's like we're, we're traveling down a road that leads to destruction. And we realize that salvation is actually behind us. And in order to get there, we have to turn away from the current road and turn around and drive the opposite direction. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. This is how the early preachers of the gospel would preach the good news. In Acts 26, verse 20, we read this. The message was declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. There it is. So, so repent, turn away from your life of, of living for yourself. Turn away from your sin and turn to God. And friends, this isn't just a, a mental exercise, a verbal exercise. We should verbally confess our sin. We should pray for, for God's help. We should verbalize our repentance. But it's more than just thinking about turning your car around. I've been going the wrong way before and realized it. And just, but usually once I realize it, I'm like, okay, I can keep going, but I'm just wasting time. It's not just thinking about it. I'm actually putting my blinker on, pulling to the side, doing a U-turn, and then going the other direction. It's a life change. That's what he means by bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now the city of destruction is in my rearview mirror. I'm not headed there. The road may still be bumpy and I may lose my way here or there, but I'm headed now to eternal life. I'm headed now to, to, to God. A new path, living under a new authority and a new direction. So we, when, we think about, when we think about conversion, we think about these two things. We call people to respond to the gospel. We think about repentance, turning away from our sin, and faith in Jesus turning to Jesus. And that process is all of God's grace, and that's conversion. That's going from death to life. That happens because we've been given a new heart to know who God is and respond to the gospel. Whereas before, we had a dead heart and didn't know who he was and didn't care about the gospel and those around us. So Christianity is not behavior reform. It's not stop doing bad stuff, start doing good stuff. Our repentance is useless unless we turn to Jesus Christ. So Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, and I think this is a beautiful picture of repentance and faith, 
what we're talking about here and the way that it's tangible. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we are fleeing wrath in repentance, yes, but we're fleeing to Jesus. Ultimately, we're not going to be the snakes that just run out of the holes and go to, a new sna- to go to a new hole. We run to Jesus Christ who delivers us from the wrath to come because he takes the wrath on himself that we deserved on the cross. He absorbs the wrath in our place. God pours out his wrath that we deserved on Christ. And he dies in our place and then is raised from the dead. That's what Luke's gospel is about. Pointing not just to our sin, but to our Savior. Running to Christ. Friend, God loves you enough to tell you you're going the wrong way and then to point you to the right way. To point you to Jesus Christ. Friend, have you repented of your sin? Sometimes that gets, that gets kind of in the category of churchy words. I heard someone tell me that the other day. It's, we don't really use those churchy words. That's a biblical word that we need to understand if, and, and eternity depends on it. Turning from your, have you repented? Have you agreed with God about your sin, that it is evil? That you've sinned ultimately against him and you deserve justice? And then have you turned away from it and said, now I'm going to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And I'm going to follow Jesus Christ as my king. Friend, would you do that today? Would you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Would you follow him? I'm not talking about your church background or your church attendance. Or how your life compares to your friends. Have you repented to God and trusted Jesus? The offense isn't that you're offended that I'm calling you a sinner. The greatest offense is that we've sinned against a holy and perfect God and we don't even acknowledge it. This is why Jesus came. At the end of Luke's gospel, there's a kind of great commission statement that we read and we should pay very close attention to. This is from the risen Jesus, died and resurrected. Luke 24, verse 45. Then he opened their minds, these, these men on the road to Emmaus. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Friend, we can't remove repentance. There's no salvation apart from repentance. There's no turning to Jesus apart from turning from your sins. Repent and believe. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And that may mean for you for the first time this morning, putting your faith in Jesus. You don't have to come to the front to do that. You don't have to come talk to me to do that. You can do that, and I encourage you to do that right where you are. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. Turn from your sin. Acknowledge your guilt before God. And that Jesus died to take it away, to, to, to reconcile you with God. And then commit right here, right now, to follow him. That he would be your king, your Lord, and your Savior.
For some of you, that means following that first step of believer's baptism, saying, I'm going to make that statement publicly to my congregation and say, I'm going to, I'm going to do that in front of the, the world to say that I'm now with Jesus, come what may. It may mean joining a local church and covenanting to, to witness corporately to the love of Jesus Christ to this community and to others around us. There's really no neutral response. Turn to Jesus. John's going to give us some specific questions now about what that looks like, or maybe some answers, two specific questions about what that looks like. And that's the last section that we're going to look together at this morning, uh, John's application. So he's given a message, and now he's going to apply that message. You know you're in a good place spiritually, and really a good place as a preacher, when you, you hear this question from the crowds in verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? We understand our guilt. We understand where we are. We understand God's holiness. What shall we do? What are some concrete applications, John, to what, it, what repentance looks like? And he's going to give them some very specific things. Look at verse 11. And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also come to be, came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Now, there's a, there's a purposeful leveling up when you look at the ministry of John the Baptist and you compare it to the ministry of Jesus. That's purposeful on Luke's part. John understands it. He's going to say in a minute, I can't even tie Jesus' shoes. There's no, I'm going to decrease. He's going to increase. So if you, if you look at these, these calls to obedience and repentance in John the Baptist and you look at the way Jesus speaks about this and like the Sermon on the Mount and others, you'll notice kind of a, a holistic kind of focus on the heart in Jesus. And, and, it, and it's just like, yeah, there's no way to squirm out of this. Like we're, we're, he's nailing us every time. And so you just see a leveling up. But even here with, with what John the Baptist is teaching, his, direct, his directives here are very action-oriented and uh, I think that's helpful for us. I think that's helpful for me instead of leaving repentance in the fluffy, fluffy clouds and saying, I just, I need to do better or I kind of feel vaguely bad about the way my life's going. Put some concrete information on there, right? Give me something I can, I can actually help me to, help me to do this. And it, and it comes out of this, the, 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 the change in my heart. So I just, just know that about, I know that about me and maybe, Maybe you should think about that about yourself, the danger of just being vague as you think about repentance, as you think about what it means like specifically, maybe with some specific sins that you deal with and how to turn from those. In broad strokes, he's pointing out just the reality that the gospel creates a life of Christ-like love. We've said that a lot lately. The gospel, this change that's going to happen through Jesus, creates a life where you're focused on others and not just yourself. The life that John lays out is looking out for the needs of others, living in integrity, honesty, contentment. Okay, so he, he addresses a general principle of, of sharing with others as they have need. In verse 11, if you have two tunics, this undergarment that would go under the outer, outer shirt, share with someone who doesn't have one. Very basic and very alien to our natural self. I got two, I got two, I got three. We want more. 
If you're blessed with more than you need, a fruit of repentance is not hoarding your resources, but being generous with others. May the Lord give us ears to hear as Americans who have more than we need. Do you have enough food for yourself and your family? What about those who don't? A repentant life looks out for the physical needs of others, not just our own needs. Not just me surviving and getting more and more and more and more. The hard truth of understanding our sin and the need for repentance and new life in Christ creates a soft heart of love toward others. You've heard that before. Hard truth creates soft hearts. It opens our eyes to things that before we were just blind to. We overlooked them. We, we just went through life and it's because we were about ourselves. How strange would it be though as Christians to overlook people who are suffering around us? How incongruent with our message to overlook the needs of our neighborhood. And for us specifically here, overlooking the needs of the poor around us. Those who are growing up without fathers in the home. Those who when you talk to, you know they have a list of needs. We did not come here, beloved, by accident. God has placed us here as emissaries for him to show his love and grace to others, to live out repentant lives before others, not to parachute in on Sundays and go back to our lives, but to share the love that we have been shown in Christ. So if you have more than you need, he says, Share with those who don't. The next groups that he addresses are tax collectors and soldiers. They're in similar situations. They're tempted to abuse the authority they've been given for their own financial gain. So taxation, if you're probably familiar with this, is privatized in the Roman Empire. So tax collectors would charge, uh, you know, there would be the Roman rate, and they would charge more than that to make a living, but then even more than that to line their own pockets. But I think it's interesting, even though there's this weird corrupt system that John doesn't say, uh, stop being a tax collector. Or we might prefer him to say, stop paying taxes altogether. He's not ushering in a kingdom that's a, a political, revolutionary type kingdom. That's what people think is going to happen. That's not what's going to happen. He says, actually, do your job with integrity to honor the Lord. Same with soldiers. It doesn't say, ah, military, that's bad. Should definitely not be in the military if you love the Lord. No, that's not what he says. He says, be content with your wages. Don't extort people. Don't abuse your authority. Be content. They weren't paid very much. That's why he's saying that. That's why they're tempted to do this, to use their authority for for unjust gain. Be honest and content with your wages. So I think here's the general lesson as we look at these things. What kind of sinner are you? We're, not, we're, we're all sinners, but what kind of sinner are you? What are your particular temptations? Your particular besetting sins? And we are to repent accordingly. I think it's interesting, the common thread in these examples is money. Did you notice that? Money is a great barometer for the fruit of repentance in our life. What we do with our money, it reveals our priorities, where our treasure is, it's where our heart is. 
Are we living for ourselves or are we living uh, for others? I don't know if you, have a, if you have an iPhone and you just wonder, man, how much time have I been spending on this app? And you just pull that little screen time app up and you're like, oh my goodness. 45 hours yesterday, right? And the day's only 24 hours. How did that even happen? Many of us members received a year-end giving statement this week that showed how much we gave to the church this year. feels a little bit like a heart check for me. I don't know about you. I look at it and I think my first thought is, man, what if every member of our church gave what I gave? Wouldn't that be great? I sort of do the calculations. Oh, here's our budget. Here would our budget be. Pat myself on the back a little bit. Then I thought, what's the number that I probably should be giving that would really honor the Lord? Number that would, that would reflect both uh, a love for the Lord and um, a sacrifice for the people of God. And put that number in the equation. Our budget would be a little bit different. That's just me. What about you? Does money have a hold on your heart? What fruit of repentance, what actions need to take place to root out the sin of idolatry in your heart? As you think about your life, and I'm talking to Christians now, you think about your life, where does the Lord bring particular conviction? And how do you need to repent? Let's just think concrete and practical for for a little bit. Are you regularly escaping from the challenges of life to the emptiness of fill in the blank, of, of pornography, and nobody knows, of, of food, of alcohol. You're medicating because life is hard and you're going to something else to, to, to get by and to survive. What steps need to be taken to bring the, that sin into the light today? What fruits of repentance? Maybe you've been rash with your words Maybe anger, as Dave, I appreciated Dave's prayer, is, is boiling over in our house. What, what steps need to be taken to address the root of my lack of contentment? I'm just not content. Why? Are you in a place of authority that, if you were honest, you'd say you're abusing your authority as an employer or some other, some other situation? Maybe it has to do with finances, maybe something else. Or maybe we all understand we're under authority at some level. Are we bucking up against that authority? And it manifests itself with bitterness and being passive aggressive and all these other things. And, and there's just this clear lack of trust and contentment. If you were at the men's retreat, raise your hand if you're at the men's retreat. This, we have a list, don't we? We have a list to think through, brothers, about, about areas in our life that we want to look to. Tangible areas and say, what, what, how can we plan better as in leading ourselves? How can we work better in, in having our lives and our families led by the word of God, serving and loving our wives, leading our homes? What was, what was it that stuck out to you, brothers? Maybe passivity, maybe laziness, maybe you're falling away from the spiritual disciplines. Make time this week to think about processing that and what that, what that looks like. That we would be bearing fruit of repentance. This is all fruit of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? It's, repentance is just, it's coming out of a heart that's been changed. That is now walking and following Jesus and is aware 
of our proclivities, aware of our temptations, aware of the needs of others, whereas before we were just like a blind person walking down through life. So now we're called through this Holy Spirit-directed repentance to turn away from lovelessness and impatience and harshness and prejudice and jealousy and hatred and unbelief, prayerlessness, coldness, self selfishness, and much more. So ask the Lord with me, I'm asking the Lord to give us grace to breathe the fresh air of a repentant life. Not a life that, that this doesn't have to be over one particular, you know, you're, you're confessing that you're a serial killer. This is the Christian life. This is what it means to walk in, in following Jesus, our King. It means we're walking away from where we were. We're going away from the city of destruction. We're following the king. We're, we're breaking up the unplowed ground to make straight his paths to work in our heart for us to be effective as a witness for Christ. The Westminster Confession says this, Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. And it's God's grace in our lives to do that. And it permeates all of life. It completely reorients our life around Jesus. It's not leaving the world and becoming a hermit. It's living in the same world differently, like Jesus. It doesn't save us, but we cannot be saved apart from it. In that sense, it's both kind of the on-ramp to salvation, but it's really a compass for all of life. Martin Luther said in his 95 Theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. May it be so for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you that it is always relevant, always timely, and always needed. And so we pray that you would be at work now in our hearts. We confess our need, Lord, to, to have our eyes opened. We pray that you would reveal blind spots in our lives of lovelessness and selfishness as we meditate on the glory of the gospel. Lord, thank you for this time that we have this, this spring to just look upon Jesus and gaze at the wonder of the gospel. Lord, we pray that that would change us and that all of our life would be lived for you and for him. We pray this in his name. Amen.